Yeah, this is a strange topic in many ways to, you know, be an expert on. It's it's one though I've I've, I've spoken on in a number of places and a number of contexts. And what's interesting about the topic of church discipline is that everybody everywhere has an excuse not to practice it. So if you spend time teaching on this topic, for instance, in Zambia or South Africa, the, the excuses I hear from pastors not to practice it are, well, you know, Jonathan, you got to understand the nature of tribal structures here and how uh, tribal identity makes it hard to practice membership and discipline in quite the way you're describing. What do we do? Or, if you're teaching in the Middle East, teaching in a UAE to a Afghan pastors, and the Afghan pastor says, well, you know, the shame culture is such that if a man is disciplined out of the church, even if he's repentant, he's going to be too filled with shame to ever come back. It's not going to work, right? Brazil, we're going to talk about the importance of family and extended family and how that works against membership and discipline. What do we do with that? You know, Hawaii. People are laid back. They're not used to being held accountable. Michigan, we're going to sue you. <laughs> no. what's, what's the moral of the story? Everybody everywhere has got some excuse. A, a reasonable, a wise, a culturally astute wise. Last night, or yesterday, I was talking to somebody about... Um, the laws in Michigan, if, if a person says, I'm leaving the church, you can't withhold their resignation. Is that correct? And if you move to discipline, it's against the law. Is that, is that correct? Do you guys know? That's not a rhetorical question. Who told me that? Did you tell me that? <laughs> you told me that. What, what's, what's the... Explain... Uh huh. Right. That's a lot. Expeditiously. Okay. And does it say anything about if the congregation or the pastors act before removing? Is the implication that you're not allowed to discipline if they ask to be? But would that be going you against the law? To, you have to remove them when they request their resignation. Okay, yeah. I know in parts of Canada, it, it, if, if a person resigns, and I'm, I'm not sure what the clear import of this law is, not having looked at it, but in a number of places, if they resign and you proceed to discipline, you are clearly contravening the law, right? And so pastors are asking now, what do we do now? You know, and... I don't know to what extent you guys face that here in Michigan, but you know that may be a reality that it's worth being aware of so that when you act, you are as wise as a serpent, right? Even if finally you have to disobey the law in some sense, you want to know exactly how and why and where you're disobeying it so as to do it astutely. Anyway, so this, this, is, a, uh, this is a tough topic for all of those reasons. Uh, let me tell you uh, about uh, one, one particular man our church had to remove. His name was Hermano. He was a citizen of Indonesia. And he had been in America for several years. He was out on the Washington, D.C. mall at a 4th of July celebration, watching the fireworks, and a member of the church shared the gospel with him. And he liked what he heard, and he ended up going to church with this member. And 
in, in short order, repented and believed and, and joined the church. It was, it was wonderful. And uh, he became real involved in the church and was being discipled by different men in the church and seemed to be growing expeditiously in the church. And everybody was encouraged until one day the elders discovered that Hermano was lying to his employer about his work status or his, his legality and, and work status. And at the time, this, this, was, this was a couple of decades ago, the immigration laws were unclear and the government wasn't enforcing them. And so the elders kind of talked a bunch about, okay, if the government's not enforcing its own laws, are, are, are we bound by them or how, how do we deal with that? There was that conversation. But what was really clear was that Christians cannot lie. You cannot lie to your employer and tell them you are something you aren't, right? That's, that's black and white. And so they, they exhorted Hermano to come clean and be honest with his employer about his work status, but he refused to do that claimed they were being unsympathetic and so forth and not understanding his situation. And Long story short, they had to, we had to, the church had to remove him as a member of the church, as an act of discipline, as an act of excommunication for lying. That was the final decision. And so we instructed him to stop receiving the Lord's Supper and to no longer count himself as a member. It was a very sad day, no doubt. Um, church discipline is hard for all sorts of reasons. It's hard because Christians aren't used to being held accountable for their sin. They're going to accuse you of being ungracious. You know you're a sinner too. Can you really call them to something? I mean, you're not perfect. And is this the right time? Maybe we need more carrot, less stick. And what if, what if this young, struggling believer is, feels spurned and leaves the church altogether? That's not what we want. And of course, there's the threat of division in the church as people don't understand, especially family members. So church discipline is an easy topic in a room like this. It's a lot harder. You're actually in it. In this talk, I want to talk about the what and the why of church discipline. What is it? Why is it important? And in the talk after lunch, I'm going to talk more about the how, how to do it. Right? So this is kind of more theological foundations, and that's more practice, essentially. And the what and the why, let me divide it up into four questions for us, okay? Question number one, what is church discipline? Well, in the broadest sense, Discipline is one part of discipleship. And discipleship involves teaching and correcting. And discipline, we typically refer to as that correcting side of teaching and correcting. And for that reason, there's a centuries-old practice of referring to formative discipline, teaching, and corrective discipline, correcting. Right? And we correct by pointing out error. And in that sense, church discipline is like any number of other Topics. Think about a math teacher. What does a math teacher do? And he, you know, he, he teaches the lesson on the board, and then he walks around and he looks at the, the, the kid's work and says, oh, you forgot to carry the two, you know, and he corrects their errors. And we understand that both the, the teaching, the formative teaching, and the correcting are part of, as it were, discipling, teaching, growing, strengthening that math student, right? You, you need both. Or, or a doctor. So is this, this is how to live healthy. 
and then he has to cut out the tumors, right? So there's both. And you would say a math teacher that fails to do both or a doctor that fails to do both is not a good math teacher, is not a good doctor. That's just common sense. Discipline is part of discipleship. You know, they're etymological cousins. And part of how we disciple is we discipline. More narrowly, okay, so, so in a broad sense, discipline is correcting sin at a definitional level. In a more narrow sense, we use that word discipline to refer to, as it were, the final step of removing somebody from the church. Ex, we're using it synonymously with excommunication, excommunion-ing, removing them from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's table for unrepentant sin, sin they refuse to let go of, right? Which is to say, church discipline is not about retribution, it's not a punishment. It's not enacting judgment. It's a warning, a very strong proleptic warning to draw people back to repentance, to redeem them, hand them over so that his spirit may be saved, says Paul, right? It's a small picture of judgment in the present, yes, but but as I, as I said, it's a, it's a proleptic one. It's It's a two-dimensional shadow. So you got, you got the big three-dimensional pulpit here, but then you got the, the little two-dimensional shadow on the floor. And that, that's all it is, is the shadow pointing to the real judgment to come, right? And how kind it is of churches to warn people. If they're heading for this final, unmovable, unshakable, irrevocable judgment, to show them little shadows in the meantime, you know what, the person showing up with the real thing, abandon all hope, you who enter here, never having been warned. Question two. So that's what it is. It's correction, broadly, narrowly. It's a final act of removal. Question two, what does the Bible say? Matthew 18, turn there. Verse 15, if a brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. i tell you the truth, whatever you, plural, Whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever y'all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. They represent me. They speak for me. Okay, so what do we, what do we have here? We have, we have somebody sinning. He's confronted privately. He doesn't stop. Got to bring a couple more along. So the matter is established by two or three witnesses grabbing from Deuteronomy 19 in a court-like setting, which is to say the, 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 the church possesses a judicial kind of authority. What are the keys of the kingdom, which we'll see in verse 18? Well, the keys are a, a ju judicial kind of authority to make declarations in the same way a, a judge, when he pounds the gavel and says guilty or not guilty, doesn't actually make the person having committed that crime the person did or didn't, but, but the judge has a, a declarative, you did it or you didn't do it, that the legal system, then we all treat the person as guilty or not. Okay, so the, the wielder of the keys, the local church, possess that judge-like authority 
we see in verse 16, this invocation of that legal language, due process language, helping us, giving us a clue that, that, of what the keys are. And then verse 17, if you refuse to listen to them, tell them to the church, who's the final court of appeal? The final court of the church, the final court of appeal is the church. And if he doesn't listen to them, so they act, if he doesn't listen to them, you remove him. And the, and the grounds for all of this is that the church possesses authority described in 18 to 20. They possess the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose on earth what's bound and loosed in heaven. So this person is eventually, little by little, moving outwards like, you know, splash and water removed by the entire church. He's to be treated as a outsider to the covenant community, a Gentile or a tax collector, a betrayer of the covenant community. He's to be excluded, excommunicated from fellowship. Notice there's a concern to keep it as small as possible. Look, if you can deal with this one, great. It's done. Uh, bring a couple more, to bring some pressure. Well, let's do that. Or, or maybe the one who's making the accusation is wrong. Maybe the two or three are going to come out and say, yeah, Jonathan, you're a little bit, you know, a little too harsh there, I think, in your assessment. But the point is, bringing a more pressure. There's this numeric crescendo. Incidentally, why am I a congregationalist, an elder-led congregationalist? Well, in part, because right here, there's no, there's no mention of pastors or elders. It doesn't say one and then two or three and then the pastor. One, two or three, the church. There's a numeric crescendo going on here. Now, ordinarily, I think elders are going to lead. I want to read this text together with my 1 Peter 5 and my Hebrews 13 texts about submission. I want, I want to read both of those texts together, which is to say, ordinarily, we're, we're doing this process under the authority, as led by, as guided by the elders. We can talk more about that more if you want. But it is finally the church's decision to remove, because after all, they're all going to have to treat the person as an outsider, right? They're all called to... Treat him as a pagan or a tax collector. Still, obviously, Jesus' words, I think, would seem startling to many Christians today, maybe members of your churches or mine. I mean, didn't Jesus just tell us not to judge back in Matthew 7? What do we say to the member who comes along? Pastor, not to judge. It sounds judgmental. Friend stealing from his workplace, friend of yours is stealing from his workplace. You're like, uh, you need to stop doing that. Fellow church member. What do you do then? He doesn't stop. Keep stealing from the, you know, just kind of taking a little bit off the top. You gonna tell the pastors? You gonna encourage him to take it to the church again if he doesn't stop? Seems to be what Jesus is calling us to do. Of course, it's not just Jesus talk this way, it's Paul. Flip to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Stepmom, probably. You are proud. Shouldn't you have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I'm with you in spirit. Pause, by the way. Notice the connection between this and Matthew 18, 
20. Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. They speak for me, they represent me. It's in that context, the keys of the kingdom, verse 18, will be used, verse 17, to put a person out of the church. And it's, it's just almost as if Paul got the memo, right, from Jesus. Because he doesn't say, when you are assembled in your elders' meetings on Thursday nights, in the name of the Lord Jesus, the power of the, he didn't say that. He says to the entire church, when you are assembled in the name, where two or three are gathered in my name, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus present, where's the power of the Lord Jesus present? In the assembly of the Corinthian church. What does the Corinthian church have? They have the power of the Lord Jesus to do what? Well, verse five, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and the spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Right, and then jumping down verse 11, but now I am writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler with such a man do not even eat. At least the Lord's Supper, at least do not, what does he mean do not even eat? At least do not take the Lord's Supper. And thinking of ancient Near Eastern conceptions of hospitality, right, where you're bringing somebody into fellowship as it were and eating. He eats with sinners and tax collectors, that, that kind of view of the meal. Okay, with such a person, you're not sharing that sort of fellowship. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. But you, but as for you, expel the wicked man from among you. By the way, just a little tangent here. I think we got a great illustration of elder-led congregationalism right here, if I may, right? Some of you guys might be elder rule guys. Okay, fine, but let me give you my, my, my little proof text for elder-led congregations. And look, look at verse three again. Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment. The root there is crino and the one who did this just as if I were present. Okay, so Paul, uh, Paul has passed judgment, but does that mean the deed is done? The man's now out. It's effectually happened. Well, no, verse 12. Are you not to crino those inside? All right, so... Okay, as I, I've passed judgment on this one, now I'm calling you congregation to do the same, right? So Paul, I would say, though an apostle and unique in many ways, here is acting in a pastor-like, elder-like capacity, having rendered judgment on this situation, and is then call, calling the church of Corinth to render that same judgment. What does that look like? Well, what that looks like is elders stepping into the pulpit in a members meeting and saying, church, we have rendered judgment as it were, on Joe, who's left his wife, another woman, and we are calling you to do likewise. We are calling you to enact past that same judgment. So the, the, the keys are in your hands. But we're, we're telling you to turn on the ignition and go, right? Elder-led congregationalism is what we see being enacted here. None of that elder-led congregationalism stuff is in my notes. That's just for fun. That's just for, <laughs> for you guys. <laughs> yeah, that Lehman, he's all hyped up on congregationalism. Okay, no, notice, notice verse 4 refers to this, this gathering, as we were talking about. And uh, the man's life, like in Matthew 18 here, does not match with his profession and he is, Paul is declaring, he is unrepentant. 
in this situation. And here, he doesn't even tell the church to go to the individual and test for repentance. Because Paul's already made up his mind. People like these, chapter 6, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? We're, we're going to have sinners outside the church, but we're not to have unrepentant, you know, dyed-in-the-wool sinners inside the church. No. So Paul's judgment here is that this man is unrepentant. And so he's calling the church to do likewise. There is a sense we could say in which Paul's, sometimes people are like, okay, are these two different methods of church discipline in Matthew 8? So Matthew 18, you got the kind of gradual, tell a few others. Whereas in Paul, it's sort of immediate excommunication. I mean, what's, how do we account for those different? Is this because this is publicly scandalous sin? If you look at a lot of 19th century Baptist writers, 18th and 19th century Baptist writers, they, that, that's the argument they gave. Well, this sin is publicly scandalous sin. And as one uh, writer in particular even says, it doesn't even matter if he's repentant or not. Because it's publicly scandalous, say an older generation of, of ecclesiologists, you got to remove him. I don't think that's right. That's right. I think in this situation instead, what you have is Paul's situation begins where Jesus' situation ends. Different parts of the process. Matthew 18, you have a gradual, you have a gradual discovery of whether or not the person A has sinned and B is repentant in that sin. Plus, in Matthew 18, nobody knows about it, just, just you and the person. Right? And gradually it becomes known. Whereas, whereas Matthew, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 5 begins there. There's already a jump. Clearly sin, we all agree. Clearly unrepentant, says the apostle. And y'all already know about it. So at this point, you gotta act. He's not repentant. There's no disputing the facts. No, no disputing softness of heart. He's died in the wool time to remove them. If a person is genuinely repentant of publicly scandalous sin, or at least your assessment is genuinely repentant, I don't think you excommunicate. I think it's done. The gospel is not faith alone and Christ alone, plus never committing publicly scandalous sin. That's not the gospel. This gospel is faith alone and Christ alone. Right? Now, in those big category, sometimes whether publicly or not, sins, you have a lot of reason to question a person's repentance. I'm so sorry. Ah, uh, you're saying it. I'm not sure I believe it, though. Your words aren't you've been you've been lying to us for years. And yeah, you're sorry. Yeah, you're crying because you got caught. So we're going to go, even though you say you're using words of, I'm sorry, we're, we're still going to remove you. I, I have a category for that too. So uh, a guy I discipled, and when he was a Bible college student, and I was a seminary student, he was caught uh, by the police, I think it was, for... Um, phone calls to, to women in the church and outside the church in which he would uh, do you know bad stuff on those those phone calls and obviously intimidated and scared at a, a lot of the women. And he was deacon in the church. And it wasn't my church who 
He was at a different church. And uh, yeah, eventually, he had this pattern of making these you know, phone calls. And the, the police caught up with him, and they stuck him in a jail cell. And the elders went down, and they're like, what, what is this? He, you know, he's weeping. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Well, they decided to remove him on a kind of a 15th, 1 Corinthians 5 basis. And I think, I personally, I think that was the right judgment. Not because it was publicly scandalous sin, but because his words, his, the credibility of his words, he'd been lying to, for years, doing these things, being a deacon in the church. Sorry, man, I just can't trust your words. So... I can't affirm your repentance, so we're going to remove. So they immediately removed the next Sunday. They they removed him from membership in the church, and so I would say I call that a First Corinthians five <clears throat> sort of situation. And I, I would agree with what they did, but again, I want to be clear on the basis for that action. It wasn't public scandal. It, the basis was an inability to affirm repentance for the sin in that situation. So, so First Corinthians five. And, I'm sorry, Matthew eighteen ends where 1 Corinthians 5 begins. It's like the difference we see there. Another way to say this, friends, is that there is no one-size-fits-all process for church discipline, uh, as we'll talk more about in the next session, but certain principles do apply in every process. Clearly, Paul's goal in this is the man might be saved, the man is living in self-decision, self-deception, and uh, the process of discipline there is to wake him up, right? If, if, if he's capable of being awoken. It's like you're standing there at the road, the bridge is out, you're, you're, you're waving your arms. Stop, bridge out, right? That's what you're doing, especially in that final act. Uh, other texts we could look at, Titus 3.10, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Other texts you can write down: Second Corinthians two six, Galatians six one, Ephesians five eleven, First Thessalonians five fourteen, Second Thessalonians six fifteen. I, I, I could keep going, brothers. I think if you are. Back to our conversation last night, Ken. Even if you are a committed dispensationalist, I think you can go back and I think you can preach the Old Testament and pointing towards these things. What, what was exile from the garden? It's God saying, I'm going to keep a line between my people and not my people. Right? What, what is Noah's Ark? I'm going to keep a line between my people and not my people. What, what, what is the people of God in Goshen? You know, uh, the plagues on Egypt, not on the folk in Goshen. Flies, Egypt, not Goshen. God is using flies, it's almost like a comedy act, flies to draw the line between his people, not his people. God has always wanted the line between his people, not his line, people, to be clear and bright. Not because we want to exclude the nations, no, we want them to repent and believe, but they got to repent and believe to cross that line. You see? The, the people in the land. Not going to do it? I'm going to even excommunicate you. I'm going to send you out of the land. Right? So the whole Bible tells this story. And of course, the final judgment 
we've already talked about. There's a whole host of texts that you can use to teach your congregation about this. Uh, question number three, what does church discipline mean? Question number three, what does church discipline mean? Does it mean you're sending somebody to hell? Well, no, that's an older Roman Catholic teaching. Does it mean that you're saying with absolute Holy Spirit-inspired certainty that somebody is a non-Christian? Well, no. We don't, we don't have Holy Spirit glasses. He didn't give us that kind of insight into hearts. Rather, church discipline means that we can no longer affirm that someone is a Christian. Okay, think for a second. What is church membership? Church membership which we portray through baptism and the supper, signs of membership, is how a church formally and publicly before the nations affirms a person's profession of faith, and discipleship to Christ. Like, again, that judge's gavel coming down saying, member. Member of the church, capital C, the body of Christ, as illustrated, recognized, affirmed, visibly, the invisible becoming visible here. That's what we do when we baptize into the name and grant the Lord's Supper in the name. For we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Right? So we are affirming a person's profession of faith. Baptism and the Supper are church meals. Local church meals, signs of the covenant, making it visible, right? So when we bring somebody into membership, we say, Joe, O nations of the earth, hear ye, hear ye, is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And I think we, we, could, we could talk about that further if you want. Uh, we see that in Matthew 16 and 18 as we consider the keys of the kingdom. So when Jesus says to the apostles, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, that's right, the Father in heaven told you that. And on this rock, I will build my church. What do we have there? We have the world's first church membership interview. Hands Peter the keys. I'm, a, I'm you know, kidding a little bit. Um, the keys to, to then enact that same kind of authority in building the church. And, and then he gives that, those same keys, I think, to the Congress. I, I, I would understand the apostles held the keys. And I had a, a unilaterally, as it were, by themselves. So that when Paul says, I hand Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan to ta be taught not to blaspheme, blasphemed, I understand Paul to kind of unilaterally, as an apostle, to be excommunicating. Or, or Simon and uh, Peter, when uh, Peter says, you have, who's been, Simon's been, the magician's been baptized. That's clear. And when Peter says, you have nothing to do with us, I understand Peter unilaterally, as it were, as an apostle, be excommunicating. But what were the apostles doing? Well, they were planting churches and the apostles... I understand them to have passed. Who possesses the king's ne keys now? Is it the bishops, the presbyteries? Well, most clearly Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. It's a congregation. Churches possess the keys to excommunicate at this point, right? And what are we doing? We are removing our affirmation. We affirmed you as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ and a member of the, capital T, church, capital C, by making you a member of this church, we are now removing. We will no longer go on record before the nations saying, Joe, is these things. We're, we're sending another press release saying, we, we take it back. Right, that's what's happening. And in that sense, I would say churches function very much like embassies. It's language I, I, I often 
use. Uh, when, when I was living as a, a junior in high school or college in Brussels, Belgium, as a you know, study abroad, my passport, my U.S. passport expired. So I went down to the U.S. Embassy there in Brussels. You know, here's my expired passport. And the you know, worker at his desk does a you know, little thing, takes my passport, and in short order gives me a new passport. Right? Did the embassy make me a citizen of the U.S. that day? No, I was a citizen by birth. But did they have the authority to formally affirm my U.S. citizen, a legal authority to affirm my U.S. citizenship that I, as an individual U.S. citizen, do not possess? Yes. Right? I can't just go to border and customs, custom border control and say, I'm a citizen. Well, can you prove it? Well, no, but I am. Believe me. No, I, I need to have an authorized passport. What is the church? What is the authority of the local congregation? It's, it's to, to give, take back, when necessary, those passports on behalf of a kingdom, a real kingdom. Not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. Right? Bind and loose on earth, what's bound and loosed in heaven. The keys of the kingdom. Right? And so that's that's the authority of the church. So you're taking the passport back. So that, that, that's what church discipline means. Number three. Number four. Why is it so important? Why is church discipline so important? My first experience with discipline was with my running partner back in my single days in my 20s in Washington. And he and I went running a lot. We'd have meals together, breakfasts and lunch, sometimes dinners. And he was a good friend, as I thought. And then single man, both of us, I remember sitting at lunch with him one day and we were talking about some girl I was dating, and I said, well, you know, what about, are you dating anybody? He's like, no. Like, you know, it's funny, we often seem to talk about who I'm dating, but we never talk about who you're dating. Well, what's with that? He said, well, I'm gay. What? He's like, yeah. Okay, do you mean you're attracted to men, or do you mean you're actually like pursuing, you have a, you know, you're pursuing that, living in that? He's like, oh, I have a boyfriend. You're kidding. No. I said, you know, the Bible says that's wrong. He says, well, no. I, I struggled with it for a long time. And, uh, you know, I went to a camp and I went to a counselor and I fought it for a long time. And then one day God told me it was okay. And I said, no, he did not. And um, I went and got Brad. Brad was also friends with this man. Brad had the very same conversation with him. God told me it was okay. Then Brad and I told the elders. The elders went and talked to him. God told me it was okay. No, he didn't. Uh, we're going to have to take this to the church. No, thank you. I resign. And we also found out, incidentally, he was out like talking about it on radio stations. Uh, this was not hidden. He wasn't trying to hide it. Yeah, so he's out there on the radio stations talking about it and uh, tried to resign, and the church said no, or the elder said no, I'm sorry. You, you join the church by the authority of the church. You you leave by the authority of the church. We're, we're going to withhold that resignation, kind of getting to the question that you raised. We're going to withhold that resignation. Now, if you're, if you're in that situation with your laws, I, I'd be maybe a little more careful with my language, but I would find some way to withhold it and say we're taking this to the church. Yeah, again, be as lawyerly as you can, but you got to be faithful. 
finally. I went to the church. It was a very, very sad day, obviously. It was awkward. It was painful. Uh, here's, here's a more recent story. There, there was a woman in the, who lived in the basement of our, my, my house, of our house. And a brand new believer. She, was, um, she got converted during, um, what was that big hurricane in New Orleans? Katrina. Yeah, she was a Katrina refugee. Fleeing town out on the side of the road, as it were, like 100 miles outside of New Orleans after fleeing it. Her car got, didn't work. And there she is stuck on the side of the road and she's praying for help and somebody comes along and helps her and she gets converted through all that process. Kind of, kind of cool story, right? And now she's in living in Washington, D.C. and, and uh, this new young believer. And as I said, she was living in our basement. And one day, and so she would, you know, she would join us for birthday parties with my daughters and and uh, often have dinner with us sort of thing. And then one day we were sitting, uh, it was actually one of my daughter's birthdays, we were sitting at a Red Robins. And um, not that that detail's important. Uh, I'm trying to give you a clear picture. And um, how you doing? How are things going at work? Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm doing this. Seriously? It was a, art thing, which you and I would call pornographic, but she was calling it art. And I'm like, you know, my girls, little girls at that point were sitting around the table. And I was like, mm, let's talk about that later. So later, after we put the, the, the kids down, uh, we were sitting in my living room, her and my wife, and I read a bit of 1 Peter 4 to her. And so, you know, what do you, what do you think of this? She's like, well, I agree with it. And I said, well, don't you realize that that art thing you're doing is against what Peter is commanding us to do here. And she's like, no, it's not. It's art. I don't think so. I don't think art is a get-out-of-jail-free card from the sort of stuff Peter is commanding us not to do here. Well, long story short, she she kind of maintained that posture. And um, I, I got her sister involved who was also at the church, and her sister was very helpful, or her brother-in-law, her husband, was very helpful. Other members of the church were helpful, but she kind of maintained that posture. It's art. It's, it's not, and, and through that whole process, it was really hard on me because I, you know, I, young believer, and all my pastoral instincts are like, I don't want to put this young, foolish, you know, chick outside of the nest. You know, I want to keep her safe and protected. And I don't lose sleep. I sleep pretty handily. I was losing sleep. I don't get upset stomachs about things. A strong stomach. I was getting an upset stomach through this whole process. Why did I keep pushing ahead? Well, because I knew I had a choice. I could trust my wisdom or I could trust the wisdom of God's word. And the wisdom of God's word is very clear. What's interesting about church discipline is it used to be practiced frequently, uh, typically by Baptist churches or Baptistic churches, right, in the 18th, 19th century. Early 20th century, it started to fade away. And it started to fade away not because any theologians came up or exegetes came up and said, you know, we've been looking at God's word and we got this one wrong. It's not actually, you know, what it said. You know, nobody argued against church discipline as biblical. That did not happen in the early and the mid and the late 20th century. Rather, Churches became, became more interested in other things, 
like growing their numbers, like financial solvency, like making an appeal, like drawing in unbelievers. And so they started lowering the standards and church discipline just kind of faded away. That's what happened. God's word is clear. It's pretty wise, right? As I said, it's, it's difficult everywhere, but God is wiser than we are and the Holy Spirit is no fool. He knew what he was doing when he inspired these texts. That particular story, by the way, the, the man who we removed for homosexuality, to this day, he's not come back. Um, I, every once in a while, I'll Google his name and he's still there. Um, where, where's this woman? By God's grace, she, she came to me one day and she said, well, Jonathan, I'm, I'm gonna, I've stopped doing that thing at work, that art thing at work. Uh, she said, I'm not entirely sure I'm convinced on the illegitimacy of it as, 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 a, as a point of art, but you know what, you're my elder and I trust you. Getting to our conversation earlier, what was she, was she submitting to me? I'm not sure, but you know what I mean? I'm like, that's enough, I'll take it, you know? Um, that showed a Holy Spirit-given humility, I, I would say. That she was willing, even if she wasn't intellectually utterly convinced by the things I was saying at that moment, to with her life and action and heart submit to the church and an elder in the church and stop that foolishness, that, that wickedness, I would say. So why is church discipline so important that a Baptist theologian would have said when church discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it? Well, for three reasons. Three, three whys here. Why is church discipline so important? Three concrete whys. Number one, it shows the love of God. It shows the love of God. It seems unloving to us and to our church members, of course. Love in our culture is about self-expression, self-realization. If you don't let me express myself precisely, as I want to, you must not love me. Love never judges. Love is not dogmatic about truth. Love is not about authority. Love is unconditional. If you love someone, set them free, right? Because that, that, that's, the, that's the mental baggage our members come in thinking about love when, when, when they come into our churches. The gospel is just God's unconditional love for us, right? Just believe, he'll take you as you are. That's kind of it, really. Uh, you know, you're going to clean your life up a little bit as a Christian, sure. But, you know, once saved, always saved. Which is to say, our ideas about love are too often formed more by the movies and television and music than the Bible. Uh, you know, kind of fast forward, how do you begin practicing it? You know, step one, you might say, is helping your members think better about love. You know, what love is from the Bible. What does the Bible say? Well, listen to the passages like these. 1 John 5, 3, this is love for God to obey his commands. John 14, 21, he whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. 15, 10 to 11, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. We need a radical reorientation of what love is to help our churches reorient what they understand love to be. Because in, in the Bible, love leads to obedience and obedience is a sign of love. In a little flow chart. Love 
in the Bible leads to obedience, and obedience is a sign of love. And you, you know that with your children, right? When your kids are little and they're just discovering that they can resist you and disobey you, you're like, mm, I'm not feeling loved by you right now. And they're not. Right? Love leads to obedience, and obedience is a sign of love. That's super clear in the Bible. It's not enough to say, oh, I, would, I love that song, and tears rolled down my cheek when we, I know I love Jesus. Well, okay, great, but are you obeying Jesus? If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching, says Jesus. Think about Hebrews 12. We read there that for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone whom he receives. It is for discipline you have had to endure. God is treating you as sons. Brother pastors, when you're trying to lead your church towards church discipline, practical tip, use the language of love. Talk to them about it as a matter of love. Friends, why are we doing this? Uh, Why are the elders recommending you remove Joe as an act of discipline? Friends, we're doing it for the sake of love. Love love for Joe's sake, that he might not live in self-deception any longer and come to repentance. Love for the weaker sheeps in the church's sake, lest a little bit of yeast work through the whole batch of dough. Love for our non-Christian neighbors that we as a congregation might represent the holiness and love of Christ rightly. And of course, finally, love for Christ's sake, that we might be an obedient and loving church. That's how you begin to counsel and encourage your congregation to a better understanding of love, and I think to practicing church discipline. When we join a church, we commit to love one another, but not love as Hollywood defines love, not love as two homosexual men define love, not love as spoiled children of overly permissive parents define love. No, as the Bible defines love. We, We commit to loving one another like that and putting that on display. He who spares the rod hates his child says Proverbs. Church discipline can be done poorly and abusively. Yes. We need to caution, warn against that. Do that a little later. But church discipline as prescribed by Scripture is loving. Number one, why do we do it? Loving. Number two, it grows the church in holiness and health. Remember what I said about the math teacher teaching and then correcting? It grows the math student, he's, he's hurting him if he doesn't. Well, in the same, same way, church discipline grows the individual involved. It grows everybody in the church who knows about it. We keep reading in Hebrews 12. He disciplines the one he loves, chastises everyone he sees, see, receives. The passage continues. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. I want to share in his holiness. Do you want to share in his holiness? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, I don't typically use the NIV, but I like the NIV translation of this one. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I love that phrase, a harvest of righteousness. What is it? You know, you know what a harvest looks like. Rolling fields of wheat being harvested. A harvest of righteousness and peace. That's a beautiful picture. That's what church discipline produces, right? harvestness of righteousness and peace. I remember one sister saying to me, Jonathan, you know, you can be so selfish. 
This is, this is a long time ago. <laughs> you can be so selfish. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, well, uh, there's this, and then there's this, and then remember that time you did that, and then, then also this. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Uh, I, I can be pretty selfish. What was she doing? She was correcting me. She was disciplining. A little act of discipline, a little informal act of church discipline right there in the <laughs> church hallway. That occurred. And she helped me grow a little bit in my selfishness that day. I remember one time when... Um, Elder Greg came up and stood before the church and um, said, we're elders, or been working with Christian, but Christian is his name. Christian uh, left his wife and kids, moved out with his mistress last week. Now, we've been working with him for months, and we've, we've been knowing some adultery's been going on, but he's been saying he was going to repent and come back, but it's finally reached a point where he actually, he's actually moved out. And so now we as the elders are coming to you as a congregation. And uh, the kids were like, I want to say 12, 13 down to five, three kids. And, uh, oh man, that was a gut punch for the church, right? And um, so if you have a relationship with Christian, we'd encourage you to reach out to him, call him to repentance. If you don't have a relationship with Christian, uh, now's probably not the time to start one, but we want you to be praying, right? And if, if nothing changes between now and the next regularly scheduled members meeting two months from now, the, at that point, the elders will return to you and, and recommend that you remove him as an act of discipline. Any questions? How, how's Alina doing? How are the kids doing? What, what, what can we do to care for them? Those are the questions. What, what do we say to them? And uh, great conversation with the church in that moment. Think about what was happening in that moment. You know, the, that, that couple right there who have a brother in another state, calls himself a Christian, but just left his wife. And that couple is being tempted to kind of downplay the seriousness of this brother in another state who calls himself a Christian yet left his wife. What's happening to them? They're learning. They're really, oh, maybe we have different kind of conver- we need to have different kind of conversations with him than we did before. And you know, that college student, he's kind of toying with his pornography. Oh, my goodness. I don't want to end up like that. Two nights later, Tuesday night after that, I, I went out with David. David's a, a young man I was discipling at the time. And I, we went out for dinner, and then I, I drove him home, and we pulled up next to his house, and he, he opened the car door, and he started to get out, but then he sat back down, shut the car door, and then looked over at me. He said, Jonathan, we didn't talk about this, but I've been thinking about what happened Sunday night nonstop. I'm like, yeah, it's it hard. He's like, Jonathan, I hate sin. I'm like, yeah, brother, it's a killer. It's a deceiver. What's going on in David's heart? A harvest, righteousness and peace. As we did that really hard, awkward, socially counterintuitive, unloving, 
thing, says the world, uh, of going before the church and said, Christians leaving home, church, we've got to act. We're all involved. We're all, we're all members of one body. David is growing in his hatred of sin. Paul picks this idea up in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I, I hope in David, sincerity and truth were growing, as well as that couple, that college student, the congregation. Why do we practice church discipline? One, for love. Two, for holiness of growth. Number three, it helps the church's evangelism and witness. If the church looks just like the world, why would anybody want to join it? If the young men are known as philanderers and the rich men is all rich and stingy, if the young women are known as flirts and the old women as alcoholics, how attractive will that church's witness be? How successful will their evangelism be? B, church discipline is how the church keeps its identity as an alternative society, as a counterculture, clear. It's, it's that line between the church and the world, garden, ark, Goshen, wilderness, land. It's how we keep it clear for the sake of our integrity and our witness among the nations, right? Listen to how Peter talks about this. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing a wrong, man, those Christians are bigots. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Why are they so loving? Gracious. Their homes are happy and healthy. My broken, divided, terrible home. We should be distinct in our holiness. We should be distinct in our love. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples. If you love, not them, love one another. How do we love one another? In holiness and righteousness and in fighting sin. Why do you join a church? You know, we say in every church membership class, we, we, we join this church. We're calling you to join this church in part to help each other fight sin, to link arms. We, we know we can't be... Christians alone. There's a sense in which when you're stepping into the church, it's like it's like paint thrown onto the invisible man. You can see himself for the first time. Oh my goodness, I, I do have more sin than I than I realize. But now these brothers and sinners, sisters are helping me, <coughs> these brothers and sisters are helping me fight that sin and work against that. And I'm helping them as well. And that makes a beautiful witness. By your love for one another, they'll know you're my <coughs> disciples. Okay, I told you at the beginning about Hermano. He refused to repent. We removed him. It was a sad day because he'd become a Christian ministry of the church. We handed him over to Satan. This is say the kingdom of not a, not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but a citizen of the kingdom of Satan. Still we did. He moved away. But a year later he wrote this email. From Andy, one of the elders emailed him and he wrote back, Andy, thank you for a very encouraging email you wrote. Thank you to the church for remembering me and continuing to pray for me. I have to confess, I left the church with an unfinished sinful matter. And the sad thing is I took it lightly. I should have learned to humble myself and come to you for a reconciliation. Are we enemies together, to each other? 
No, we are Christian brothers. But I was too proud and stubborn. My pride led me to think that God alone would settle the matter without me taking some action. And then I went on my own way. And what was the result? I did not find peace. When I remember the air I made towards my brothers and sisters at CHBC. I'm glad now, and I never regret to obey God by repenting of my sin, which I've done. I know it now why and what purpose God brought me home. He went back to Indonesia. <coughs> because there an eternal opportunity for me awaited. I wish I could describe to you the kind of relationship I have with him today. It's too beautiful to describe. Despite the hardships that I've been facing in the almost last two years, the Lord is continuing to show his love and full mercy to me. Andy, I've been praying for this reconciliation to happen, but please show me how. I'm longing to reunite with my family again. Lastly, please send my thanks to the church members and to the elders. I miss you all. Much love, Mono. And a few weeks later, we sent the following reply. Mono, it's been great to get back in touch with you. I wanted to let you know that last night, the members of CHBC, at the CHBC members meeting, we shared with the membership part of your recent email to me and gave them an update on how you were doing. Everyone was humbled and encouraged by your words and your actions. The membership voted unanimously to affirm the following motion from the CHBC elders. Motion. The CHBC elders happily recommend that the members of CHBC acknowledge with thankfulness to God the repentance of our brother, Mono, that we formally express to him our forgiveness for his actions toward us, and that we publicly renew our expression of fellowship with him and love for him as a brother in Christ. We do all this with great thanks to God for his faithfulness to his word and to those who honor it by their obedience. We prayed for you as a congregation, asking God's richest blessing on you and your life and your work. May God continue to encourage and sustain you as you follow after him, your brother in Christ, Andy. Uh, Mano is serving as an evangelist in Indonesia. He was, he was texting with Mark just literally the other day. Mark was showing me the texts. He repented. God was glorified. Church, by God's grace, did the hard thing. And now there's an evangelist, Muslim nation, in Indonesia because of trusting finally the word rather than trusting ourselves. I think we're out of time. Let me pray. And we take a break. And we're going to do lots of questions later, I guess. So let me pray. Father, forgive us for being wise in our own eyes. Forgive us for being cowards. Help us to trust you, your Holy Spirit. Help us to trust your word. Give us courage. Give us wisdom also. Not to be overly zealous, but wisdom to be rightly zealous and being faithful to your word in our personal lives as well as in our churches and leading our churches. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.